read earlier a passage of scripture that gave the resurrection account from the Gospel of Matthew. I want to read the Gospel of John, which is where we've been going through in our series. So if you can read it on our screen, there's Bibles in the pew if you didn't bring your own. But let me read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the feet and one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We, we, we read this story, and, and we, we find a version of this story recorded in every gospel. It's why we gather here during this time and celebrate. And it's something that, that you know, if we could sum it up, in just a couple words, it would be, he's alive. He's risen. But it's more than that. Even though the text tells us they don't fully understand it yet, what they're beginning to understand is, he's alive, he's risen. Everything he said is true. But remember, one of the themes of the Gospel of John is people didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. They just kind of understood it. 
what they're realizing is everything he said is true, and now we're beginning to understand what he really meant. When he was talking about going away, he wasn't talking about going on vacation, taking a trip. When he was talking about tearing down this temple or, or, or even that the Son of Man must die, these weren't figurative things. He wasn't saying, oh, he needs to die kind of emotionally or spiritually. No, they understood that it was true. It was all true. Those of you who were with us on Good Friday service when we read through the two previous chapters, we, we were reminded on Good Friday we're reminded on Good Friday of the sufferings of Christ, of the crucifixion of Christ. And there's two things that are reminded here, and I, I like the songs that we had this morning because, because they remind us of both of those things. The first thing the cross reminds us of is the depth and the tragedy of our sin. Our sin is not sim simply a disagreement with, with God. It's not simply a mistake. There is, our sin is deep in us. To use a biological term, it's in our DNA. Something fundamental to who we are. And it's tragic. And it's tragic not just because God had a bunch of rules and we didn't follow his rules. It's tragic because God created us for a purpose. And that purpose was good and high and awesome. He created us for a purpose that we could know the true joy of living and living together. That we could live in this world and not be at war. We could live in this world and not be envious of each other, not wanting what the other person has, not worried about our own personal survival, our own personal things, or just taking care of me and mine. A world with no hatred, no division over the ridiculous things we divide over. We were never going to even get remotely close to it. When we rejected God, we rejected his plan, we rejected his kingdom. Oh, we have tried, and the Bible tells us, for thousands of years, human beings have tried to manufacture what God designed us for. It's what we call civilization. It's what we call culture, community. We've tried, but it always ends in failure. It never lasts. And why? Because within each of us is this ultimate desire to take care of ourselves, to protect ourselves. And maybe we extend it to some people that we love. But whenever that begins to go beyond just my family, 
and I start thinking about my community, and then I think about maybe my, my city or my state or my nation, it all begins to break down. It breaks down. And it all becomes a power struggle. You might go, well, I don't feel like I'm in a power struggle. You know why? Because you lost. You're not in a power struggle because you, you just accept whatever's told to you and you do it. I'm not just saying you, me too. I mean, when's the last time you decided you were going to go protest at the state capitol? Nah, we just go, okay, that's the laws. I don't like it. I'm going to do it. I think I should be able to go through a red light at 2 a.m. when there's nobody else on the road. Makes sense. But here I am, sitting there, 2 a.m., nobody else is on the road. It's not a bad thing that that's the way we get along, but the reason it is is because what are we afraid of? Because there's a penalty, there's a punishment. Our communities are not based on goodwill, that we all just care about one another, we're all just going to get along. Notice how that was the two years ago, the, the theme of the early stages of COVID. Early stages of COVID is like, look at everybody just getting along, just trying to get over this. Because honestly, we all thought it was only going to be a few months. The longer it took, the more you saw the divisions. At first, it looked like Americans pulling together. Then, after a year, Americans falling apart over one simple issue. That's what happens. The cross reminds us not just the tragedy of sin in my life or your life, it, it reminds us of the tragedy of sin for the entire human race. But as we just sang, his mercy is more. The cross is also a reminder to us that God's mercy is more. That what Jesus Christ came to do is he came to, to take this world system that we have all set up and done and we just, we're born into it, we participate in it, we either align ourselves with power or we try to take power for ourselves if we have people that are taking care of us, they become our overlords, and that's okay. And if not, we try to make our own way, but it's all about our own survival. That's, what, that's our system. And, and, and Jesus' own followers in the Gospel of John are trying to get him to participate in the system because they're smart. It's not because they're stupid. They look at Jesus and they go, Jesus can start talking and tens of thousands of people will gather. When we went through the Gospel of John a couple years ago, you know, I, I used the phrase Jesus mania. All of you who remember the Beatles, uh, some of you are like, who is that? But uh, kind of like a British version of K-pop. So, um, so Beatlemania, those of you who remember that, like there would be these newsreels of, of thousands of teenagers just rushing to wherever the Beatles were. 
Jesus had that same effect. The Bible even has, has records of that where Jesus would speak here and then he would go somewhere else and people would rush to the next place to see him. The disciples saw that. They went, man, this guy can raise an army like nothing. And that's just him talking. And then he would heal people. And then, for goodness sakes, as we read a couple weeks ago, just a few days before he's crucified, he brings somebody back from the dead. Who wouldn't follow this guy? They want him to take all this awesome power and just go in and take over because they know he can. But the cross reminds us that Jesus didn't come to be the best, the most powerful at our game. He came to change the game completely. It's not about who's the strongest, who's the toughest, who's the richest, who's the smartest. Jesus came to show us the way of God's love and God's mercy. There's two things, two major things in our society today that, that rail against the, re the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the gospel, that stand opposed, and it's harder and harder in our society because of these two things. And one of them is, it's just not possible. People don't come back from the dead. We need evidence. I've never seen it happen. Oh, sure, people have near-death experiences, 20 minutes, 10 minutes where they're you know, medically dead. But we're talking a couple days plus you know, he not only resurrects, he doesn't, he, he's not like limping because he's just had his, you know, legs nailed to a cross. No, it's not possible. And that's important for us to understand because at the heart of the gospel, is the word impossible. What it takes to do what God wants us to do, the way he designed us, created us to be, to be able to live in healthy, perfect community, it's impossible. It's impossible unless God intervenes. The resurrection is a reminder to us that it is impossible, it is impossible for us to do what the Bible says we should do. A lot of people are attracted to the message of the Bible. They love all the words about love and hope and peace. Of course, they want to redefine them, but they like the words and they want to take it out and they want to leave behind all those things that seem not possible. Understand this. You being able to love the way God loves 
is more impossible. I don't know if that's possible, that phrase I just said. Is as impossible as the resurrection. Don't fool yourselves. Don't think you can just go through and and pull off some of the nice messages of the Bible and say, oh, I can apply those to my life. Oh, you can, but you will never do it because you cannot do it. Christianity admits up front it is impossible for us to live up to God's standards. The way I summarize it is this. God's standard is this that we would love everyone perfectly all the time. Love everyone perfectly all the time. We can barely love when we have three kids perfectly. You know, we struggle with that. We struggle loving, you know, our spouses when we have children. We struggle loving, you know, just, you know, anytime there's conflict, how to resolve conflict. We struggle with this all the time. How could it possibly everyone all the time? It's because it's not possible. And the cross reminds us, it reminds us of one of the most difficult things we could ever imagine. That Jesus had taught us, love your enemies. But on the cross, what do we see on the cross? We see Jesus loving his enemies while they are killing him. He's not loving them theoretically. Oh, if uh, my enemies ever came up to me and threatened me, I I would love them. He's not doing it like post, like, yeah, they were pretty bad to me, but I love them while they are torturing him, while they are mocking him, while they are hanging him on the cross and killing him, he is loving them. Tell me you can do that. I want to meet you, because I can't. There's no way. I can do the theoretical loving of my enemies, but that's largely because I don't have enemies around trying to kill me. I can probably do the post afterwards. Okay, my enemies got me. They beat me up. They did some things to me. They, you know, and then you know, after therapy and a couple years later, I can look back and go, all right, I forgive them. Incredible, impossible standard. And yet, the Bible tells us, God is saying, Jesus is saying, If we all could do this, the world's awesome. The world's as as God designed it. It's amazing. But as we come to this thing in our culture that that just says, no, if, if you can't prove it scientifically, it must not be true. You will never prove the resurrection scientifically, ever. Why not? Well, because science, to prove something in science, and it's nothing wrong with science, it's what science is, is that science has to, to prove something, it has to be observable and it has to be repeatable. 
Now, I've offered this before, no one takes me up on it. We could do a scientific experiment to test the resurrection. Like, you know, some of you could volunteer, you could be killed in some way, and then, you know, see what happens a couple days later. But this is the thing science struggles with. Science struggles with unique things. This isn't just talking about scripture. Science struggles with unique things because unique is not observable or repeatable. Unique means one of a kind. If the resurrection is unique, it can never be proved scientifically. And yet more and more in our culture, people want to say, do you really believe that? How can you believe that? Because it's not scientific. The other, the other big opposition to the resurrection, to the gospel, is what we were talking about earlier. If we're honest, we don't want to be loving. We don't want to be the one who forgives. I remember growing up, and in my day, I guess it was the equivalent of superhero movies, was westerns. And I remember watching TV shows that were westerns, movies that were westerns, you know, in the 60s and the 70s. And you know, the one character I never wanted to be, I never was this character. When my friends and I would play, sometimes you know, I would be you know, the, you know, the Comanche, and sometimes I would be the cowboy, and sometimes you know, we, would, we would do all these you know, things when we played. But I never wanted to be this guy, and that was the preacher guy. Because the preacher guy was the stupidest guy in every Western movie. Because in the middle of a gun battle, he would, hey guys, can't we have peace? And he'd always get shot. And I'd be like, what an idiot. You could have stayed down and said, hey guys, can't we have peace? You could have done something else. But that told me something about myself that I didn't want to be the peacemaker when I was that age. I wanted to be one of the guys fighting. It's funny that we, we, don't, we, we often don't cheer for the person who's trying to be the peacemaker, whether they're good at it or not. But we often cheer for the hero or the heroine who goes in and wipes out the enemies. It's part of who we are that even those of us who are followers of Christ that you know, we're just, you know, I, I remember a, not a great joke, but a joke people used to tell, you know, Christians used to tell, they used to say like, oh, Jesus says, if someone, you know, slaps you, turn the other cheek. But if they slap you again, then you're free to do whatever you want to them, right? So they get two free punches, and then you're going to take them on. It's like, I'm not pretty, I'm pretty sure that wasn't Jesus's message. But that kind of, that connects with something inside of us like, okay, there's a limit. I only have two cheeks. So then after that, I can go back and just 
ignore Jesus. The resurrection is God's statement to the world, I am God. I am God. If you want hope, if you want love, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want to see the only hope for the world, and not only the only hope, the greatest hope, the best hope, this is the way. The all-powerful God the perfect God, the God who loves you, the God who created you and knows how you were designed, he is calling you back. And the resurrection is the powerful sign in history saying this is the way because you cannot do this on your own. The text that we see here, the first point is a point we actually made a few weeks ago, but I can't escape it when you see the Gospel of John, but what we see here is, is the way the story is told and it unfolds, you got to remember the first listeners, the first readers, they're not like us. They haven't seen all the movies, they haven't, you know, they haven't read it a, you know, a thousand times, whatever. The, the way that it's unfolding. It's kind of mysterious. What's happening? What happened to Jesus? Where's his body? John is taking us through the same emotions that, that these, these first followers of Christ experienced when they were coming upon this scene. But ultimately, what we see is Jesus appearing, and, and he's, he's called you know, Rob and I here, but then he immediately starts talking about the Father. And then ultimately Mary says, I've seen the Lord. And he's being revealed here as what John has been doing throughout the whole gospel. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. And the big point we get here is that he's the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all. He's not simply the Lord of death. He's not simply the Lord of life. If you remember back in the Lazarus story, people were so distraught because they felt like as long as Lazarus was alive, Jesus could heal him because Jesus was the Lord of sickness. And Jesus is coming along saying, no, I'm not just the Lord of sickness. I'm the Lord of death. And we say this phrase, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't beat people up for these phrases, even though I might have a slightly different feeling, uh, you know, interpretation. But we often talk about Jesus conquering death. He didn't really conquer death. He was already Lord of it. He's just demonstrating his power over it. And if he did conquer death, it was no contest. He is Lord of all. Throughout the Gospel of John, John presents Jesus as being always in control. We saw this last week. Even when he's standing trial in front of the people who can kill him, he is, he is always in control. He controls the conversations. He directs it. He, he's, he's right there doing 
on his own power and his own volition doing exactly what he believes his father wants him to do. It's never out of his control. He's always following his father's plan. Even in the crucifixion, when it talks about, you know, that they were going to break the legs of the, of the people on the cross so that they would die faster. Those of you who don't really understand crucifixion, I don't want to go into all the details, but basically you, you suffocated to death when you got too weak to push yourself up to breathe. And so if they broke your legs, you couldn't push yourself up and you'd die faster. In some ways it was an act of mercy because some people could stay on a cross for days. But Jesus had already said, it is finished. Jesus had already given up his spirit. And so when they come to him, it's, it's not, they're not gonna determine when Jesus dies. Even his death, never out of his control. I like the detail of verse seven. And the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. From someone who doesn't make his bed in the morning, to see the great care that Jesus resurrects from the dead, and it doesn't really tell us who, but I'm assuming Jesus is kind of matter-of-factly took that thing off, folded it up, put it on the side. He's even pictured in control there. The details that, are, that we're told, they're told about, about that and then later on about Mary seeing him and conversing with him. This helps us avoid what unfortunately has become more prominent in the church in the past couple hundred years and, and it, it's not going to go away is that, oh, the resurrection, it's, it's a story that was added. It's it's, it's, how the, it's how the disciples felt about Jesus, and so they felt they were resurrecting him by living out his teachings and his truth, and so then they created this story to go along with it. It's kind of a weird way to create a story. If you read all four Gospels, you would think like if they created a story, why didn't they create the same story four times? Why include details, especially details like these? I think the answer is pretty simple, because it's not a made-up story. Oh, you can maybe want to question their sanity. Fine, question their sanity. I don't, but you might. But this isn't just what they interpreted. If all they saw was an empty tomb, if all they saw were clothes there, okay, that could be interpreted. But Mary and later the other disciples seeing Jesus, talking with him, having breakfast with him, it'd be kind of a weird story. Weird details to remember. This isn't simply a spiritual, inspirational thing. The second thing we, we have is 
this kind of strange phrasing in verse 8. It says, then the other disciple, we believe the other disciple is John, and that John was not using his own name. John doesn't mention two of the disciples in his gospel, himself and his brother, James. We believe he references them, but he doesn't use the names. So we've, a lot, most people believe this is John. So John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And then it says, and he saw and believed. But it immediately follows with, for as yet they did not understand. What we're going to, to see in, in, the, in the coming days, and especially next week, when we, when we do the second half of this chapter, that salvation, salvation from, from the way of this world, salvation to be the people and be in relationship with each other the way God intended, salvation from sin, salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And faith requires understanding. So on one hand, we get John saying he believed, but John also admitting, I didn't really understand. I, you know, it's almost like he's looking back and go, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I actually put two and two together and connected it with things Jesus said, but I didn't understand. You see, the empty tomb was, was not enough. When Peter and John leave, all they saw was the empty tomb with the clothes there. They haven't seen Jesus yet. They don't know what happened. They're not fully understanding, which again is a theme throughout the Gospel of John, not understanding what Jesus is saying, not understanding what Jesus is doing. And it tells us that, that they, they, they go home. And then at some point after that, Mary returns, and, and she's still grieving. Why is she still grieving? You know, she's seen the, the scene, but she doesn't understand. And then we get this, in, in the Greek, it's so, so powerful, because Greek has a way of, of writing and telling stories the way a movie would show you scenes, where it can go from you know, one phase to the other and, and one scene to the other and talk about what's happening in the background and bring it all together. And it's woven together so well here when she, she comes and, and first she sees the two angels. But then it says, having said this, she turned around. She turned around. It's, it's, John is helping us understand something. He's, he's using these, 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 these two powerful images. One is, they, she went there at right before dawn, and the light is increasing. John uses light to help us, you know, see when people are coming to a true understanding of who Jesus is. And there's that image, and then there's the image of her turning, turning away from her grief, turning away from her mourning, turning away from her hopelessness, 
And even when she turns, she doesn't yet understand. Her grief is so overwhelming that even when she turns and she sees Jesus and she knows, who, she knows Jesus' face, but she doesn't recognize him. soon as that happens, in her grief, she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And all Jesus has to do is say her name. All he has to do is say her name. He doesn't have to say, follow me. He doesn't have to say, believe in me. He just says her name. When she knows that this mysterious person knows her, she knows who he is. One of the powerful messages, powerful message, that we find in scripture, powerful message that we find in the gospel is that Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. John was talking earlier about, about somebody, you know, people saying like, oh, you know, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know God would never accept me. God knows you, and yet he still loves you. In the book of Romans, Paul writes, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us, made the way of salvation. She sees, she doesn't recognize, but when she hears his voice, when she hears his voice, like Jesus has said earlier, my sheep know my voice. When she hears his voice, speak her name. She sees clearly. Grieving turns into joy. Salvation comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Faith requires understanding. But let me tell you, it doesn't require PhD level understanding. It doesn't even un require undergraduate level. It just requires a very basic understanding. As Paul writes in Romans, he says, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's not just simply memorizing those words and reciting them. It's understanding when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, your way. When you say Jesus raised him, God raised him from the dead, you are acknowledging this idea of the resurrection, that Jesus, I'm committed to following you, but I also recognize I cannot. I need God to, to come in and empower me to do what I cannot do on my own. From there, you grow and you learn. 
From there, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come and help you. From there, you engage yourself with other Christians, healthy Christians. You, 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 you get into God's Word, and from there, you grow. When we say Lord, we, we are acknowledging that we either have tried to take over lordship of our own life and doing things our own way, or we've chosen another Lord, another Master, We repent, we acknowledge the hopelessness of our situation, and we turn to Jesus. And then the last point, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. This is another theme in John. It's the theme of witness. When we see Jesus clearly, we cannot help but tell others. We cannot help but tell others. When we see Jesus clearly, when we experience Jesus Christ in our lives, when we experience new life in Christ, when we experience the fruit of the Spirit, the joy, the peace, the love, when we experience all of that, when we experience any of that, we cannot help but tell others. It's not enough just to say, well, God wants us to love, and he empowers us to love, so I'm going to love. John says, yeah, love is essential. Love is important. Love is what should actually fuel our witness, but make no mistake, we need to witness. We need to tell others. We need to invite others. True hope, true living, true joy. It's what comes from life in Christ. And it's not just for ourselves. God wants us to experience this so that we can help the rest of the world. And if we think about our own lives, and you think about in the bigger scheme of, of time, how very short we have on this earth. What really matters? What really lasts? Are we going to regret that we didn't see one more football game or we didn't buy one more pair of shoes or that we didn't have a big enough TV? That, you know, we didn't have our dream car. If that's really what you're going to regret, at the end of your life? What kind of life is that? But it, if we experience new life in Christ, we see everything differently. It doesn't happen right away, it takes time. But you see beauty where no one else can see beauty. You find joy where others cannot find joy. You love those that others cannot love. As we close with this time with prayer, I invite you, I invite you to just look at where you are in, in your life. Are you someone who's never followed Christ? 
never repented of your sin, perhaps today is the day you call upon the name of the Lord. Are you those who've been kind of halfway, halfway there? Maybe today is the day you truly surrender and you're all in following Jesus. And are you a faithful servant? Faithful servant who messages like this just fill your heart with joy because you know everything that I've said you experience. May you be encouraged.